So now we're going to be continuing our study as it pertains to God's law. Now, last Lord's Day, you know, I started by discussing the fact that if we're going to look at God's law, then we need to understand that God's law um, contains basically three aspects to it. The ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And it's important to understand that fact so that we can rightly understand how we're to understand the law, how we're to understand what's continued and what's been abrogated. Now, last Lord's Day, I spent most of my time dealing with the first two aspects, the ceremonial and the civil law. And if you remember, when we looked at both the ceremonial and the civil law, what we saw was first, starting with the ceremonial law, that it was that law that was given that contained primarily those sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Um, and those sacrifices, obviously representative of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was to perform. And all those sacrifices that we saw in the Old, Te in the Old Testament, the priests and all of that, was, was to point our eyes to that one perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ that he was to perform that was to actually deal with our sins. Well, when Christ comes, when he offers himself, his body, as that perfect sacrifice, guess what? All of those sacrifices, all of those things that we see in the ceremonial law that was pointing to Christ were fulfilled in Christ and therefore are no longer continued in the new covenant itself. Thus, we don't continue on with the ceremonial law because they were fulfilled in Christ. And then we saw with the ceremonial law that it was those civil laws that we see also in the Old Covenant that really marked a distinction, a separation between Jews and Gentiles. You know, they included in particular, not exclusively, but, you know, they would include those things such as the dietary restrictions, the restrictions in regards to the different clothes, type of clothes to wear or, or mixed clothing and whatever the case may be. Um, and what we saw was, again, the purpose was to separate Israel from the rest of the world. Well, guess what? After Jesus fulfills his commission on the earth, what does he tell the disciples in Matthew 28? To go make disciples of all the nations. So no longer was there this separation between Jew and Gentile. This is why, as we noted in Acts chapter 10, the vision that Peter has to where those foods that were once unclean, he was now able to eat. Why? Because the, Jew, the Gentiles are no longer considered unclean itself. So all those things that marked the distinction no longer apply. They expired with the nation of Israel outside, as our confession so clearly explains, those things that were um, general, what they note as general equity, or in other words, those principles that we find defined by the moral law itself, which we're going to be getting into today. So let's dive into this, the moral law. I wanted to take this lesson to talk specifically about the moral law because there's much confusion as it pertains to the moral law. So while the ceremonial law was God's way of directing our eyes to the redemptive work of Christ, and the civil law was God's way of marking Israel 
as distinct. The moral law is what gives us God's ethical standard for right and wrong. Because God is God and created all things, he is the one who sets the standard for what is right or wrong. When you look through the Bible, you'll note that God has a moral standard that all people are required to obey from the very beginning. This is why Cain, for example, was guilty of murder because God declared murder a sin. This is why God destroyed the world by a flood because the entire world was guilty of consistently violating God's law. Now, all that being said, where we see God's moral law most clearly listed out for us is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, and also Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. Now, something that's important to note when you look at the Ten Commandments as it's listed in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, it's that they are a summary of God's moral law and not the totality of it. In other words, each of the commandments given, as we see in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, do not exhaustively explain what is fully meant. Let me give you an example. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, you shall not kill. Now, if we left our understanding of this commandment at just those words, then we won't have a proper understanding of that commandment. Is all killing sinful? If I don't actually kill someone, but in my mind, I'm harboring hatred in my heart, is that okay? Because, I mean, I'm not killing them. If someone attacks me or my family and is trying to kill me or my family, and I need to kill them in order to defend myself and my family, did I just sin? See, those four words in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, does not give us a full explanation of that commandment. It merely summarizes it. In order for us to fully understand the sixth commandment, you're going to have to look through the rest of Scripture to gain full clarity. And that same principle applies not just to the sixth commandment, my brothers and sisters, but through the rest, to the rest of the Ten Commandments itself. And let me give a not so perfect analogy, but hopefully an analogy that helps to explain further what I'm saying. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with Cliff Notes. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Cliff Notes, Cliff Notes are basically short summaries of different books, different literary works. Oftentimes, you know, if a person doesn't have the time or, quite frankly, the desire to, to read a full book, they'll get a Cliff Notes version of that book to get the basic gist, gist of the book. For example, you know, a, a, a large work, War and Peace, is about 1,200 pages. Most people don't want to take the time to read over 1,000 pages. That's why most people don't read the Bible. Cliff Notes version of War and Peace is about 100 pages. About 10% of it. Now, what's great about Cliff Notes is that it saves a person time by just summarizing the important points. What's not, what's not good, what's bad about Cliff Notes is that a person who merely reads the Cliff Notes version of books and not the full version of the book will never get a full grasp of that book. They'll miss out on some of the important connections or themes that a Cliff Note 
won't bring out. Likewise, those who merely look to the summary of God's law, the cliff notes of God's law in Exodus chapter 20, without diving into the rest of God's word for the full expansion of his moral law, will never fully understand God's law. They will miss out on what God really means by each of those commandments. The rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 was a person who only understood God's law in Cliff Notes version. He just looked to God's law as it stated in Exodus chapter 20 and assumed, well, that's all I got to do. So I, I've kept it. Many Christians who assume that, you know what, they're basically good. They assume that because their understanding of God's law is just in Cliff Notes version. See, no one who's truly examined the Bible, and the full scope of God's moral law could ever with a straight face say that they've perfectly kept God's law. Jesus himself helps us to understand that we're not to understand God's commandments in just cliff note version. When he says in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, you have heard that it was that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he continues on in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what is Jesus doing here? I mean, is he adding something else to the sixth and seventh commandment that was never meant before? No, he's not. Rather, what he is doing is he is pointing out that each of those commandments means much more than what is summarized in Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. See, many of the Jews of those times were following the Cliff Notes version of the law and not the full scope of it. And Jesus is pointing out that his law is more comprehensive than what is cliff noted in Exodus chapter 20. So if you want to understand the Ten Commandments, you're going to have to do a lot more than just go to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 and think that you know what those commandments truly mean. You're going to have to look through all the scripture to get a full idea, full understanding. So, with that being said, so we saw again, I talked about this last week, how the ceremonial law and the judicial law in different ways don't apply to believers today. Well, what about this moral law? I mean, if both of those are abrogated and we don't have to keep any more, well, it's logical to think that maybe we don't also have to keep this law anymore. I mean, we're not under law. We're under grace, right? Well, complicated because it depends on how we're going to be looking at the moral law. So let's start first by in looking at how the moral law in one sense is abrogated. The moral law is abrogated in the sense or done away with in the sense that it no longer condemns the believer. See, because of our innate depravity to look at God's law and to try and keep them in order to be justified before God brings nothing but a curse upon the individual. Paul tells us as such in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Remember, the Judaizers were going to the Galatian churches and were telling them, hey, along with faith in God, you also need to do circumcision. And also, while you're at this circumcision, why don't we go ahead and continue on with the rest of the old covenant and the law? And Paul was letting them know, no, no, no. See, if you think that you can attain justification, not by faith in Christ, but by doing the law, you need to do all of the law. And guess what? If you try to do it, you're going to find out real quick that you must be perfect on it or else you are cursed. James tells us in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgression or transgressor of the law. You gotta keep all of it, not just some. You can't stand up to God and be like, well, you know, I kept nine out of the ten. You know, man, that murder one was kind of hard for me not to do. Nah, you got to keep all of it. See, when a person looks to God's holy standard and then examines his life in light of that, what that will bring is dread and misery. He will realize that, quite frankly, you know, he's screwed. If the way to be saved is by perfectly keeping the commandments, because he has never done that, nor is able to do that. So rather than being a means to attain righteousness and everlasting life, the law becomes a means to reveal wickedness and to condemn to eternal punishment. But Christ Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Jesus Christ comes and perfectly keeps God's law since we were incapable of doing that. In doing so, he demonstrated that he was truly righteous. He was able to now become a sinless substitute and have our sins imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to us placed on us. He was able to offer up his sinless self as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. His offering up of himself satisfied the wrath of God and atoned for our sins. Therefore, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and his work will be justified and have their sins forgiven. They will be declared righteous, not because of some innate righteousness that they possess, but because of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to them. As a result of this, the curse that they were under because of the law is no longer there. It is in that sense that the moral law has been abrogated. It's curse. It's constant condemnation of us. It's burden that it brought upon us is no longer there because our hope of eternal life does not lie in perfectly keeping God's law, but rather on placing our faith in Christ and his perfect work. It is in that sense that we are no longer under law, but under grace. But Paul asks, in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Well, how does Paul answer? He says, may it never be. See, the fact that we are free from the curse of the law does not mean that we are now free from our duty to obey it. 
And now this brings us to the next aspect that we need to talk about. How the moral law is still binding to us as Christians. Paul continues in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, and he tells us this. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We have a new master now, Jesus Christ. Our prior master was sin, and we were faithfully obedient to sin when we constantly disobeyed God. See, the moral law helped us to show us how disobedient we were to God and how faithful we were to sin. But see, now that our ownership has transferred as slaves and has been transferred from master sin to master Christ, our duty to obedience also has transferred from master sin to master Christ. As believers, because we are Christian, we are duty-bound to walk in holiness. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, let me ask you this question. How do you know whether or not you are conforming to your old self or you're walking in holiness? Are you just supposed to figure this out on your own? Go with your own senses? Be wise in your own eyes? How do you know what is holy and what isn't? How about this? What Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Well, let me ask you this. How do you know whether or not you are conforming yourself to the ways of the world? How do you know whether or not you are walking as Christians? You are being transformed. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you will lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we're not to walk according to the old manner of our life, but we're to walk Put on the new self, walk in holiness, walk in righteousness. 
How do you know whether you're continuing to walk as Gentiles? How do you know whether or not you're walking in holiness? See, in all of these passages that I'm laying out here, we have been given imperatives, commands in regards to how we are to live now that we are in Christ. There is a way that God calls us to live now that we are adopted into his family. It is no longer in the futility of our mind, as we once did, assuming for ourselves what is right or wrong. It is no longer in conformity to the world and its twisted standard for right and wrong. It is in accordance to God's holy standard for right and wrong. Well, where do we find that at? The only way to ensure that you are walking in conformity to the holiness we are called to is by looking to God's moral law. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, David writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? He writes, By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. God's commandments are what we turn to in order to know how to live as Christians. His moral law is what informs us as to what is right and what is wrong, what is holy and what is unholy. John writes in 1 John 2 verses 3 through 6, by this we know that we have come, or by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And you know what's interesting? What John is saying here. He's basically just regurgitating what he heard Christ himself tell him and his disciples. When he writes this in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. He goes on to say in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. See, a follower of God is one who is following God's commandments. A lover of God is one who loves God's commandments. See, the Bible does not know of any Christian who is one that rejects obeying what God commands. As a matter of fact, whenever God's grace is twisted into an excuse for lawlessness, that's when the scriptures inform us that we might have a problem here. Jude writes in Jude 3 and 4, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long ago beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness 
lawlessness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, there are people coming into the church that were twisting the whole, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. And using that grace as an excuse to sin, to gratify the flesh. That is not the case at all. Paul even tells us in Romans 3 verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Again, people were twisting the grace of God into an excuse for wickedness. Is that not what we see so often today? People abuse God's grace and use that as a reason to justify continuing in sin. But see, the scriptures are abundantly clear as to the fact that even though we may not be condemned by the law as Christians, we are still bound to obey it. John Calvin and his institutes, I think he so eloquently explains this. In book two, when he writes, some, some unskillful persons from not attending to this boldly discard the whole law of Moses and do away with both its tables, imagining it unchristian to adhere to a doctrine which contains the ministration of death. Far from our thoughts be this profane notion. Moses has admirably shown that the law, which can produce nothing but death in sinners, ought to have a better and more excellent effect upon the righteous. When about to die, he thus addressed the people in Deuteronomy 32, 46 and 47. Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of the law. For it is not a vain thing for you because it is your life. If it cannot be denied that it contains a perfect pattern of righteousness, then unless we ought not to have any proper rule of life, it must be impious to discard it. There are not various rules of life, but one perpetual and inflexible rule. And therefore, when David describes the righteous as spending their whole lives and meditating on the law in Psalm 1 verse 2, we must not confine to a single age an employment which is most appropriate to all ages, even to the end of the world. Nor are we to be deterred or to shun its instructions because the holiness which it prescribes is stricter than we are able to render. So long as we bear about the prison of the body, it does not now perform toward us the part of a hard taskmaster who will be satisfied without full payment. But in the perfection to which it exhorts us, points out the goal at which during the whole course of our lives, it is not, it is not less our interest than our duty to aim. It is well if we thus press onward. Our whole life is a race, and after we have finished our course, the Lord will enable us to reach that goal to which, at present, we can only aspire and wish. End quote. So, see what Calvin is saying here. Yes, the law may not condemn us as believers, but the law is still what we look to to obey God to grow in holiness, to know that we are walking as God calls us to walk. We are not justified by it, but it is what we look to to ensure that we are walking as God calls for us as believers to walk. And if we discard it, like Jesus says, like John says, we don't know the Father. 
we don't truly love him. So I, I hope you can see how, unlike the ceremonial law or the civil law, which we do not adhere to anymore, with God's moral law, it is different. Being that it is God's righteous standard, it is not something that we can just discard. God's holiness never changed, so therefore his moral standard, his moral law never changed as well. While it may no longer condemn the believer, as it once did, it is still our standard of obedience that we follow as slaves of Christ. Now, next Lord's Day, we're going to be continuing our study on the moral law by examining the proper uses of the law since it is our continuing standard. But what I want to do is end today by reciting to you this verse from Psalm 119 that encapsulates how we ought to think as believers who are saved by faith in Christ, but committed to keeping God's moral law. And it comes from Psalm 119, verse 166. David says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Listen to that. I hope for your salvation. My faith is not in my works, but in Christ. I hope for your salvation. I long for it, but I do your commandments. And I do your commandments. That is how we ought to walk as believers. Our justification, our hope for salvation does not rest in our works, but in the work of Christ. So we look to him and we place our faith in him. And as obedient servants, we obey those commandments that he gives to us. So this concludes our lesson for today.